0: Kim, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you, even though we've got some of the winter doldrums going on here in beautiful Seattle, Washington. But spring's coming. Boy, you guys got a big, huge dump of snow. Did. I feel a little bit bad because it is nothing like what is going on in Texas. Mm. Texas, we salute you. Hang in there, folks, and hope you get the heat back on real soon. In the meantime, I think we might have a topic to help
1: warm up your stomach. We're talking about casseroles today. This is an interesting topic. I honestly am not a fan of casseroles at all. Well, that's not true. I do have one casserole that I do enjoy, but for the most part, not a big casserole fan. When we were starting to get talking about this topic, I had the same thought, like,
0: gosh, I really don't like casseroles. They're too uniform in flavor. They can feel heavy after you've eaten them. But the more I actually started to learn about casseroles and think about them and their role in our culinary lives, I actually have to say I have a little bit more of an appreciation for them now. And I do have a favorite that I've talked about extensively before, and that's Babuti. And that qualifies as a casserole. So i got to give props to the casserole.
1: Right? (laughs) It's funny, like you mentioned, there are things, I think, in our culinary repertoire that we don't necessarily think are casseroles. But when you start to talk about what a casserole is, you're like, that's a casserole.
0: And they have a universal appeal. And that's the other thing about them, that they're rarely polarizing. Even though I, I can think of a fair number of folks who might say that they don't like them, really, there's almost always one on a potluck table, for example, and they're really a common component of how families eat. So this is our time to get down dirty with a casserole and look at its history and its impact on our culture.
1: I think I'll start with the history aspect of it, and specifically about where this word came from, because it's a very interesting word in that it relates both to a vessel and a dish that you eat. Originally, the word casserole probably started with the Greek term for cup, which is kaiathos. And then it would probably progress into the Latin word katia, which means ladle or pan, and then into Old French, which is kasse, and finally into casserole, which means saucepan or stewpan. And this happened around the early 1700s. But you'll notice that at this point, it still refers to that cooking vessel.
0: I found this really interesting reference to casserole dishes in the Oxford Companion to Food, which described an entry in an 1883 French culinary encyclopedia of, and I quote, "...a tinned copper cooking pot, well-suited to being displayed on the wall in order to impress visitors with the wealth and highly civilized lifestyle of the owners who live on food prepared in these gleaming vessels." And this preoccupation with the container has remained with the word, even when applied to the contents for the rest of its history. For it was the development of oven to tableware in the servantless years after the Second World War that ensured its universal popularity, end quote.
1: I think that the thing that's so interesting about that is that we've gone from this cup, kyathos which probably Mm -hmm. everybody had, to this gleaming tin that we hung on Mm -hmm. the wall to demonstrate our wealth. And then back to a vessel for the people.
0: Yes. My imagination was really caught about this vision of the gleaming vessel hanging above the fireplace because it reminded me of the decorative butter pats and sculptures that we have been talking about in our butter episode, for example, and as well as many food molds that I recall seeing in the 70s and the 80s particularly calling to mind that copper leaping fish mole that seemed like every household had that was only ever appropriate for molding salmon mousse. There's a certain anathema to molding like chicken salad as a salmon, or you would never use that pan to bake a chocolate cake because the visual disconnect between the shape of the food and the food itself would have been really (laughs) off-putting to people. You know, I have a bunt pan that's so sculptural and because of its decorative nature, it does make your average item, say a chocolate cake, look really fancy. And so I can imagine that type of thought coming through, too, with these decorative casserole dishes. The other thought that came to mind for me is that ever-present post-World War II kitchens all had the very egalitarian casserole dish. And I'm thinking particularly of the Corningware classic white casserole dish with the blue cornflower motif and the accompanying glass lid. So Corningware's pyrocyrum was initially developed for military applications during World War II. But the glass ceramic materials, temperature tolerance capabilities, this thing can go from freezer to oven to table, made it immensely marketable for home use after World War II, especially at a time when American food and kitchens were undergoing a sort of silent revolution in the composition of what we were eating, how we were eating, the idea of the the nuclear family, the mom, dad, 2.5 kids and the white picket fence. That's actually all a marketing construct. But every kitchen I can think of growing up, every friend's house, every adult had one of these Corningware dishes of various sizes, and they were universally loved and used. I I particularly remember we had a Corningware casserole dish, and it was a little on the smaller side, that with a complete with a glass lid. Corningware stopped producing that original Pyrocyrum-based Corningware product in 2000, but relaunched the brand as Stoneware in 2001. gonna we'll have to see if my mom still has that casserole dish, actually, because vintage Pyrocyrum pieces are worth thousands of dollars in auctions now. So if you're going through your stuff and you know that you've had something from the Corningware line pre-2000, hold on to it. Don't take it to Goodwill because those are
1: actually worth quite a bit. My mom has a set like that that she still uses, and I have called Dibs on it because it functions so well. It does exactly what it's
0: intended to withstand extreme temperature ranges. They're incredibly
1: durable. They made casserole dish really easily accessible for just about anybody. One of the reasons that I think casseroles became so popular in the 50s is because of campaigns by brands like Campbell's Soup. So they were really pushing their products after World War II. Women were willing to spend money because you have to remember the US had been under the emergency price control act which essentially rationed foods and other commodities now this rationing in the United States ran from 1942 to 1947 during those 5 years the US was seeing rations on foods like meats cheeses processed foods tinned foods sugars coffees so when the 1950s rolled around people were happy to spend money to restock their pantries and these brands realized this. So you were now seeing these full page ads that not only messaging these housewives about the products, but they were also messaging these housewives that these products would reduce the amount of time that they had to spend in the kitchen. They simplified processes, but not only did these products promise less amount of time in the kitchen and simplified processes, they also provided you with recipes, so you didn't really have to think about how to use these products. They told you exactly how to use these products.
0: It also seems that there was a cultural phenomenon, especially in regards to advertising, sort of the sort of communal thing where, oh, did you see that recipe in the Sunday edition for green bean casserole? We're seeing it right now, actually. We're seeing a form of it now with the, the TikTok pasta. Have you heard oh my gosh. about this? yes. It's this viral recipe from a social media application. For those who don't know, it's baking tomatoes and cheese and then mixing it with pasta. This is not a new flavor profile by a long shot, but because it's on a new medium, it's become exciting. It's caught attention. I feel like those recipe ads were the same thing. Absolutely, for their time, they were an innovation for their time too, because advertising hella grew and expanded after World War II, particularly. And magazines and newspapers were the go-to source that people, and especially women, would go to to figure out how they were supposed to live their lives. So suddenly, we've got companies like Campbell's, and we've talked about this actually before. An upcoming edition of Recipe Box Roulette, we talk about this idea of providing a recipe, and have to stay tuned for that. (laughs) I think it was the tuna pie, the tuna tuna pie pie with cheese roll crust, cheese roll crust. (laughs) Yep. And, and the idea that your advertiser was giving you a, a useful piece of information that just so happened to go better if you used the product that was being advertised.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that we also saw during this time was recipe contests. Mm -hmm. And so you had a lot of women who were being very creative and innovative in the kitchen. You had talked a little bit earlier about casseroles not being polarizing, but I do think that this (laughs) one casserole is probably the most polarizing casserole out there. And it is tuna noodle casserole. I hate tuna noodle casserole. (laughs)
0: It's like one of the the few Kim-approved tuna dishes. (laughs) See? (laughs) So there you
1: go. Tell me about tuna noodle casserole. Okay, I I will, I will, I will tell you all about tuna noodle casserole. So it first appeared in the 1930s issue of Sunset Magazine by Mrs. WFS of Kennewick, Washington.
0: Oh my goodness, local
1: girl. Local girl. It was originally called Noodles... And tuna fish and casserole. And I think that this naming convention is super, super interesting in that we are not a French-speaking country. And yet we love to use French words to make them feel a little bit more highbrow than they actually are. Exotic. Foreign and exotic. Yes. And you know what? During the 30s, we were all about things that were exotic. Exotic. But Mrs. F.S.S.'s recipe actually had homemade white sauce. But by 1937, it was being substituted with cream of mushroom soup. And again, it reduced the time in the kitchen. It simplified the recipe. And it was wildly popular, though not everybody loved it. Helen Evans Brown, who is an author of The West Coast Cookbook, which was published in 1952, wrote this. If, for instance, a dish composed of tuna fish, canned mushroom soup, and cornflakes is in any danger of becoming a dish of the region, because remember she had the West Coast cookbook, I prefer to ignore it. If by doing so I can give it ever so gentle a nudge toward oblivion, that is good. I am here to tell you that Miss Helen Evans Brown's wish of this dish moving towards oblivion has not ever been realized. It's probably the most popular casserole dish, I think, out there. And it's evidenced by the fact that All Recipes, which is essentially an online community cookbook, has over 2,000 500 tuna noodle casserole recipes on the site. And much like you talked about the TikTok recipe, we're seeing these... Casseroles come back with more flair. Yes. What we're seeing with the tuna noodle casserole is that we're starting to move back toward the more homemade components of the dish itself. So rather than the cream of mushroom soup, we're seeing people make Mornay sauces. We're actually seeing it being called things like... Lemon tuna mornay. And we're seeing versions of it that have several varieties of fresh mushrooms in it, sour cream, fancy cheeses, rather than the shoestring fried onions on it, homemade fried onions, uh, lemon juice, capers, fancy pastas. All of this is interesting because I grew up eating
0: tuna noodle casserole. It was an easy dish for my stepmother, particularly to make and to serve to me, and I wouldn't fuss. I haven't eaten in 20 years partly because it was a food of childhood but also food of my childhood at a time when my family was less affluent and so now that I've grown up and become you know an independent adult and I have a job and I pay my bills and I can afford to have finer food on my table I don't really go back to those those classic dishes Mm-hmm. Although I do love some cream of mushroom soup. It is a comfort food. A lot of the, what we think of as those classic casserole recipes were ones that actually were in somewhat of, uh, existent before Campbell's intervention. For example, vegetables served with cream sauces date back to medieval Europe. And these dishes were incredibly versatile. They were easily modified according to taste and available of produce. Lots of different things fit into this category. I think of things like creamed onions or creamed corn, certainly green bean casserole, which is effectively green beans and cream. But we've come to associate these dishes with Campbell's cream of soups, and that was intentional on their part. Campbell's home economists were writing and publishing recipes highlighting good nutrition, ease, and thriftiness that all happened to be easily made with Campbell's products. And this took the place of people making recipes that they had in their repertoire all along, tuna and white sauce or green beans and cream sauce, but replacing homemade cream sauces with Campbell's cream and mushroom soup, for example. So anyone able to open a can could now render a classic tuna cooked in white sauce into, quote, perfect tuna casserole. And this is also true for green beans and cream sauce, or as we know it today, a green bean casserole. And it's interesting that anymore that these dishes seem to all be made with canned products, so canned green beans, canned soups, French fried onions. Although I absolutely agree with you that we're starting to see communities of cooks and chefs and foodies in general starting to want to get away from the can and who are looking back into how to make a Mornay sauce or a classic white sauce. I'm excited about this sort of renaissance of sauces, <laughs> if you will. Right. If using canned ingredients was an evolution of a food form, I'd like to see the de-evolution and what innovations that brings us in our culinary world. Because we have access to more spices and right. produce year-round than we've ever had before in history. And here's an opportunity for us to figure out what's next for green bean casserole. Right. Green bean casserole in particular was a marketing dream for Campbell's, though. Probably on par with tuna noodle casserole as well. Because it really allowed Campbell's to capitalize on existent dishes using products from all different kinds of avenues. So, as I said, cream of soups, canned green beans, onions, into a dish that was inexpensive and that evoked the creamy richness of a comfort food. These dishes that we're talking about as casserole dishes, by and large, are all really very evocative of comfort foods. And I really encourage you, if you haven't listened to it, tune into our comfort food episode because... There's a real science behind why we like what we like. So I pulled my family and friends to discover which casseroles are their favorites. And I got a variety of answers, including tater tot hot dish, tuna noodle casserole, tamale pie, green bean casserole or bust, breakfast casserole, chicken macaroni, and chicken tetrazzini. And this was specifically noted coming from the fourth edition of Betty Crocker Cookbook circa 1969. Ramen with canned peas and spam, chili relleno, chicken divan, enchilada lasagna, turkey lasagna, cheesy rice and cauliflower or broccoli, three bean casserole, Tex-Mex casserole, beef and cheese dumplings, funeral potatoes, reverse shepherd's pie, savory cheese kugel, Jimmy Dean casserole, and Monte Cristo breakfast casserole. It's a huge list. And of course, my South African family and British friends had some fascinating casserole contenders, stuff that is not your average American fare. And they cited beef bourguignon, seafood stew, oxtail stew, and tomato breedy, which is a South African mutton stew flavored with tomatoes. So I thought it would be fun to look into some of these favorites a little bit more carefully. The one that's newest to me is funeral potatoes. This is not something that I grew up knowing on the West Coast and even living in the Midwest. So this dish is also kind of known as hash brown casserole party potatoes. This dish follows in the cream of soup tradition. Its basic components are potatoes, onion, cream soup or sauce, and sour cream topped with cornflakes or crushed potato chips. Popular add-ins are ham, peas, and broccoli, Funeral potatoes are especially popular in the Midwest and the Intermountain West. It gets its name from the Latter-day Saints community because the dish is very popularly served at post-funeral meals, but they're also easily found at potlucks and other social gatherings. The Food Network had this to say, particularly about Tater Tot Hot Dish. Don't be turned off by its humble appearance. The combination of cream of mushroom soup, corn, green beans, beef, and a delightful crispy potato topping is universally likable. Not that the Food Network is the end-all be-all for all foodie matters, or is even particularly highbrow. (laughs) When they're weighing in on the dish, you absolutely hit the mainstream. Another one I looked into is Chicken Divan. This is also a dish I know I've had, but I never really thought about it. This casserole is named after the place of its invention, which is Divan Parisian Restaurant at the Chatham Hotel in New York. This dish was especially popular in the early 1900s, and the recipe was kept secret, but the maitre d' let some of its ingredients and components slip, and so it's believed to be generally composed of poached chicken, broccoli, and a cheesy bechamel or mornay sauce enhanced with eggs. Modern versions of this recipe, though, now are mostly composed of leftover cooked chicken mixed with prepared mayo or canned cream of soup. So we've come a long way from <laughs> the early Duvon Parisian restaurant poached chicken to what we've got going on today. And then finally, tamale pie is a pie-casserole hybrid that is often described as everything that might go into a tamale, and that includes layers of beef, pork, or chorizo, onions and tomatoes, bell and chili peppers, and cornmeal in lieu of potatoes. The dish was possibly invented in Texas in the early 1900s, But it has all the hallmarks of a conservation recipe. And we talked about that earlier. The idea of rationing. Beef was not really easily had. uh, Wheat products were not easily had either. And so the early versions are mostly meat and wheat free, largely consisting of cornmeal, corn, and tomatoes. A version with canned and corn chicken made it into the 1943 edition of *The Joy of Cooking. And it has surged in popularity since then, especially at potlucks post-World War II. The White House Family Cookbook cites tamale pie as one of President Nixon's all time favorites. Now, Leigh, you know a little something
1: about tamale pie too. Just that I was actually going through my grandma's recipe boxes the other day, and she had in one recipe box five recipes for tamale pie, which I thought <laughs> oh was fascinating. Clearly a very versatile dish. Yeah, and in addition to her recipe boxes, there were a couple others that had one recipe for a tamale pie in them, so it was obviously very popular, but I thought it was really interesting that grandma had five different recipes. Some that were given to her by friends, some that she had written in her own hand, and there was one oh. that was cut out of a like off of a box. So possibly a box of cornmeal or something. Yeah, probably.
0: Yeah. Cool. You know, up to now we've been talking about that post-50s concept of the American casserole: protein, carbohydrate, vegetables cooked together in one dish. This is literally the definition of a casserole right. dish. But sometimes with a cream or tomato-based sauce. But I also wanted us to touch on a classic French casserole dish. And can you guess what it is? I'm going to say it's cassoulet. You are absolutely right. Cassoulet is named after the dish it's cooked in. It's a slow cooked mixed meat dish originating from the Languedoc, which is a coastal region in southern France. Also really well known for its wine production. And the dish is said to have originated from Castel Nandery, which I visited once when I was 19 years old and I had no clue as to what was going on. Otherwise, I would have dined well. This dish is also popular in Toulouse and Carcassonne. Now, what's interesting, too, about this region is that it actually is really marked by immigration. So you have folks coming to the the region from Spain because it's nearby and also from northern Africa. There was also internal immigration within France from Paris to southern France, particularly this region, and that might be in part due to the wine industry, but also just its geographic position to the Mediterranean. And I really feel like the dish sees those influences within it. It's always prepared with white beans or haricot blanc. It also includes some matter of confit, either duck or goose. Confit is a protein, usually duck or goose, that is cooked in its fat and then also preserved in its fat, as well as sausages. If you're in Toulouse, you're making it with a Toulouse sausage, which is very heavy with garlic, and then some additional rough cuts of meats, mutton, lamb, that kind of thing. It's slow cooked for hours and the result is a very rich, very hearty, very filling casserole. All I can ever think of is eating fireside in a tavern with a trencher full of cassoulet, dipping bread and drinking some wine to kind of break through the richness. Fun fact about cassoulet is that it can be made by deglazing the pan from the previous cassoulet. And so in that way... There have been some restaurants that have claimed to have 20-year-old cassoulet dishes because some components keep carrying it on into the next dish.
1: That sounds so good. You mentioned cassoulet, and I had just picked up Elizabeth David's Mediterranean food, and she actually has a recipe for cassoulet. This is what she has to say about cassoulet. Of all the great dishes which French regional cookery has produced, the cassoulet is perhaps the most typical of true country food. The genuine, abundant, earthy, richly flavored, and patiently simmered dish of the ideal farmhouse kitchen. Hidden beneath a layer of creamy, golden-crusted hair-cold beans in a deep, wide earthen pot, the cassoulet contains garlicky pork sausages, smoked bacon, salt pork, a wing or leg of preserved goose, which you had mentioned, perhaps a piece of mutton or a couple of pig's feet a half a duck, and some chunks of pork rind. And then she goes on to explain that no doubt because it seems an attractive solution to entertaining a fairly large number of people with little fuss Mm. or expense. So again, that goes back to that, it not being a fussy dish, although I would say that for me, this would be very (laughs) fussy. But she also goes on to say that although quite a good dish can be made at moderate cost, it should be remembered that tinned beans and sausages served in an earthenware casserole do not, alas, constitute a cassoulet. It does strike me for the kind of kitchen and pantry
0: that I have. I would not be able to make cassoulet on the fly. But It's this idea that you could, with a few items that you probably have in a well stocked pantry, in theory, if, you know, according to Campbell's. (laughs) <laughs> well stocked pantry, mm-hmm.
1: you would be able to pull off any myriad of dishes. Exactly. And going back to the green bean casserole, they interviewed some people from a younger generation. The thing that they loved about this casserole specifically is that it was so easy. Mm-hmm. It was things that they had in their pantry and that they could make and have a very good dish in the end of the baking time. I might have to give tuna casserole another shot. Yeah, not me. This just not happening. But I did mention at the beginning of the episode that there is one casserole that I really do love. Yes. What is that? it is the breakfast casserole. The thing that I love about this casserole specifically is that you can make it the night before and then Mm -hmm. pop it in in the morning and it's done in about 45 minutes. The way that I make mine is I butter the casserole dish because that's important. Mm -hmm. And I lay the pieces of bread down. Spicy pork sausage, some cheese, and then the egg custard over the top of it. Throw it in the refrigerator and then pull it out the next morning. I've not had your particular casserole, but I can imagine how amazing that's going to be. I'm going to go make one. Why not?
0: (laughs) That's the beauty of a casserole, right? You can basically make whatever with whatever you have on hand.
1: It's true. But before we go raid our refrigerators, what can our listeners expect next week? We're going to have a great time talking about one
0: of the most venerated, noble vegetables, and that is
1: the potato. It is my favorite vegetable. It's pretty amazing. There's a lot to love about a potato. It's the most flexible vegetable in the whole wide world.
0: Yes. And it's literally kept civilizations alive. True. So Potato, we will salute you next time. Absolutely.